Welcome to the Push Dose Medic Podcast, where we focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. I'm your host, Jaron Gerald. Hey guys, welcome back to the Push Dose Medic Podcast. Thanks for tuning in this week. Before we get started, I just wanted to mention a few things. I have reamped the uh, Push Dose Medic Podcast website, and you can find that at www.pushdosemedic.com. There's going to be more references more information and just a smoother transition between pages. I'm going to work diligently to keep that updated for you guys. Another thing is that if you are on Twitter, we are now on Twitter and that's at Push Dose Medic Podcast. So you can follow new information and new episodes on that account. And lastly, I wanted to mention that I will be at Fast 20 this year. That's May 19th and 20th in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So if you're available and if you're going, let me know. We can meet up, chat, and we'll be working on a few things there. I will not be speaking, but there is an amazing lineup of speakers. So I highly suggest you get your tickets now and uh, head on over there. All right, without further delay, let's get into today's episode. So today we're going to take a little bit deeper look into our hypertensive drugs, our blood pressure medications. Last episode, we reviewed the RAS cycle or system the internal regulatory system that maintains our blood pressure. But what happens when we have internal disease or failure within the system? How do we control it? Well, this is where our blood pressure medications come into play. Of course, there's always lifestyle modifications you can do to lower your blood pressure and have it in a more controlled setting, such as smoking, stop doing that, uh, change in diet, lose all the extra salt, exercise, but not everybody is willing to take that path or physically can't. And this is usually at the point where doctors start prescribing these medications when it's uncontrolled. So we're going to review a few common blood pressure medications and how they regulate within our body. If you didn't review the last episode on the RAS system, I suggest going back because we're going to mention a few familiar topics and terms within this episode. So to go over just a few things about our blood pressure, Our main factors in blood pressure are cardiac output, which involves the contraction and volume, and systemic vascular resistance. You know, our formula for cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate equals cardiac output. These are affected through our beta-1 and alpha-1 agonists, and we know we have beta-1 receptors that release our catecholamines, epi and norepi, which increase our inotropic and chronotropic effects, which in turn increases our cardiac output. As for our alpha-1 receptors, these increase SVR through vasoconstriction, and this also increases our blood pressure. Now, as we know, the RAS system greatly affects and controls our blood pressure through the initial release of renin to our final product of angiotensin II and aldosterone, and these together form vasoconstriction and volume reabsorption. So occasional hypertension isn't a huge issue. So if you're in a stress response, you're nervous, you're exercising and you have some hypertension, that's not a huge issue. But when you have longevity of hypertension, it can come with serious side effects. It can form heart failure, you have a risk of stroke, aneurysms, chronic kidney disease, and so on. So let's go over some medications lists you may see on some paperwork or a patient's medication list coming from the home. Now this isn't an extensive list, but these are just common medications you may come in contact with, and it's helpful to know their actions and how they work in the body. First, let's start with beta blockers. These are gonna be a very common medication you're gonna see. 
and they end in LOL, so it's pretty easy to remember. Now, as we know, beta receptors focus on those inotropic and chronotropic effects, specifically the actions of epi and norepi from our systemic nervous system. Now, to recap, we know that inotropic has to do with the force of the contraction, and chronotropic has to do with the speed of the contraction. So let's recap where our beta receptors lie. We have beta-1 and beta-2 receptors. Beta-1 live in the cardiac muscle around the SA and AV node. Stimulation of these increase our heart rate. Where else do we have beta-1? Well, we also, if you remember in the RAS system, we have beta receptors that lie in the kidney. So if we inhibit the action of these beta receptors, we'll decrease our inotropic and chronotropic effects of the heart and halt production of the release of renin. Now there are two different classes of beta blockers that we have to keep in mind. We have selective and non-selective. Your cardiac selective medications you may see more commonly are esmolol, metoprolol, and atenolol. Now these medications work specifically on the heart's beta-1 receptors, so there's less side effects on the other beta sites, like the beta sites that are in your lungs, which can cause unwanted bronchoconstriction and vasoconstriction. And as you can see, these can be harmful with patients that have a pre-existing obstructive lung disease. Now for those patients, they may be put on a non-cardiac selective medication, such as propanolol, cetolol, labetalol, or cardivalol. I'm probably saying these incorrectly, but as we all know, medications are kind of hard to pronounce. So, Now a fun fact I did learn about these medications was the cardiac selective medications start with the letters A through M, and non-cardiac selective medications begin with N and go all the way to Z. Now some other places you might find beta blockers are in your post-op MI patients to reduce that contractility and that oxygen demand and our heart failure patients. Now with any medication we're going to have contraindications. These medications are particularly dangerous in people with symptomatic bradycardia and like I stated earlier people with obstructive pulmonary diseases such as COPD, emphysema, asthma as they constrict the bronchioles and could have effects on the pulmonary system. Our next medication we're gonna go over are calcium channel blockers. Now this is one that we particularly use a lot in the pre-hospital world, but they're also administered for people with chronic hypertension. Now calcium channel blockers lower the heart rate and blood pressure through, that's it, blocking calcium channels. So this decreases contractility. Calcium plays a huge part in muscle contraction so they block the uptake of calcium in the vasculature. This leads to a less forceful contraction. And as we know in any part of the body, the more calcium, the more contraction. The best example of this is the garden hose effect. So if we constrict the hose to a smaller diameter or place our finger over the hole, we increase the pressure. And as we dilate or let go, the pressure decreases. So preventing calcium from entering the cells has the greatest effect on the heart as in this in turn decreases the force of contraction and decreases the heart rate. This also decreases conduction through the SA and AV nodes. This all together in turn decreases cardiac output which will decrease our blood pressure. Now there are a few different types and categories of calcium channel blockers that aren't very important. There's actually three different categories but we can break them down into two categories. And the first is dihydroperidines and then non-dihydroperidine. As you can see, these are kind of hard to pronounce, they're hard to spell, so we can break this down into an actually easier subject 
category. Anything that ends in P-I-N-E, so nicardipine, amylodipine, nifedipine, these are all in the class of dihydropyridines. Now, the non-dihydropyridines, some common medications in that group are verapamil and cardiazem. So our first category, the pines, amylodipine, nifedipine, they're mostly going to act on the arterioles and reduce SVR, our systemic vascular resistance. So by reducing our arterial pressure, we'll have a reduce in our blood pressure. Because remember, blood pressure relies on that cardiac output and that SVR. Now our second category, verapamil, cardiazem, they act less on the arterioles and focus more on to reduce the workload of the heart. As they reduce the workload on the heart through contractility and oxygen demand, inherently our blood pressure will go down. A common one we use pre-hospitally is cardizem, one of our main calcium channel blockers, and we use this in AFib and hypertensive crisis. You may also see these medications in the controlling of, like I said, AFib, dysrhythmias, and angina. So along with taking a calcium channel blocker, they have the potential to work very well in blood pressure control, but they come with a ton of side effects. First, they can cause unwanted bradycardia and hypotension. The other side effects have to do with calcium. And as we know, calcium has the effect on smooth muscle. So the patient may have chronic constipation, syncopal episodes, headaches, edema. And as we stated, heart failure is always a concern due to this newfound contractility. This may lead to that unwanted backflow into the heart and actually make the heart failure worse. The next medication we're going to talk about is probably our most common hypertension medication, and that's ACE inhibitors. Now, ACE inhibitors end in PRIL, P-R-I-L. Now, to understand how the ACE inhibitor works, you kind of need to know a little bit about the RAS system, as we discussed in the last episode. These medications are very common. Like I said, some common ones you may hear are lisinopril, captopril, and enalapril. Now, these medications block angiotensin 1 to converting to angiotensin 2, in which we know is a very powerful systemic vasoconstrictor. If we don't have the conversion of angiotensin 2, we block everything that happens after that point. So we have the inhibition of sodium and water reabsorption, and we have vasodilation. Blocking angiotensin 2 inhibits arterial constriction and aldosterone release. So we inhibit that sodium and water retention. This all leads to less volume and less constriction. With these actions of an ACE inhibitor, they can also be used in our CHF patients to reduce preload. Now, ACE inhibitors do not have an effect on the heart rate due to this mechanism of action. Now, ACE inhibitors are a very common medication, but they also come with pretty serious side effects. One of them is the most common one is angioedema. So this angioedema doesn't just occur days and weeks after, it can occur a long time after administration. Another side effect we want to keep an eye on with our ACE inhibitor patients is hyperkalemia. Now due to the blocking of further production of aldosterone, which we know has a huge effect on potassium excretion, these patients can become hyperkalemic. Now a less serious side effect is usually that irritant of a dry cough. And this is due to the increase of bradykinin, which is usually inactive. So due to this, the patient's developed a cough, and it's very annoying for the patient, and this is often why they switch to another hypertensive medication. 
Now, these patients that have this dry, annoying cough and want to be placed on something that doesn't give them an annoying cough, usually that medication is an ARB, an angiotensin II receptor blocker. And these all end in sartan. So some common ones are valsartan and losartan. And these block the action of angiotensin II. So if we remember lisinopril medications, your ACE inhibitors, they block the conversion to angiotensin II. So this is a little farther down the line where an ARB blocks just the full-on action of angiotensin II. So these are very similar to ACE inhibitors. If we block the action of angiotensin II, we don't get the vasoconstriction and we don't get the release of aldosterone. These are usually second line as to the ACE inhibitor because they don't have that cough. Although these medications do produce less side effects, they're way more expensive and may not be feasible for the patient. So our last class of drugs that we're going to talk about are diuretics. Now these are usually not first line in blood pressure control, but they are an option and sometimes they are coupled with other blood pressure medications. Now as we know, diuretics drain the fluid out of the body. This in turn is reducing our volume, which reduces our pressure. There are a couple different types, mainly potassium sparing and non-potassium sparing or potassium wasting. All diuretics are going to work within the renal system, specifically within the nephron. Now, the actual way diuretics work within the nephron can get pretty complicated between all the water, sodium, potassium, and chloride channels, but we're going to break it down to real simple terms. Just remember, wherever sodium goes, water goes. Like I said, we have those two types, those two classifications, the potassium sparing and the potassium wasting. Potassium wasting ones are usually used in patients with normal or higher potassium levels. These include your most common one, furosemide. Anything that ends with IDE is usually a potassium wasting diuretic. These diuretics inhibit the body's ability to reabsorb sodium at the ascending loop of the nephron or within the loop of Henle. And we know the ascending loop is responsible for about 25% reabsorption. So this is a pretty powerful loop diuretic. This leads to the excretion of water into the urine. Whereas water normally follows sodium back into the extracellular fluid, sodium is dumped in the urine and water follows. And these loop diuretics are not only used in hypertension, but they can be used in heart failure to kind of get rid of that increased amount of fluid and decrease that workload of the heart. Next, we have thiazides. And I think one of our most common medications in this classification is hydrochlorothiazide, HCTZ. Now these are not as strong as our standard loop diuretic, but they work in a very similar way. These actually work in the distal tubule, which only accounts from five to 10% of reabsorption. Now these act by blocking the sodium and chloride transport channels. Now usually sodium and chloride is absorbed into the blood through the sodium, potassium, and chloride channels within the distal tubule. Now as these channels are blocked, there's now excess sodium in the urine for excretion. And like we said, wherever salt is, water follows. So we have a decrease in volume. Thiazides often come with side effects pertaining to electrolyte imbalance. These patients can suffer from hyponatremia, hypokalemia, and hypercalcemia. We mentioned our loop diuretic and our thiazides, and a common thing theme we have with these is hypokalemia. 
and that's where we can introduce a potassium sparing diuretic like spiractolone. Now this interferes with the sodium and potassium pumps within the collecting duct. So they inhibit sodium reabsorption and potassium excretion. Along with that action, it also blocks aldosterone from entering the cell and attaching to molecules. Now this prevents the sodium and water reabsorption again and decreases potassium leaving the cell. This leads to the retention of potassium, which can cause hyperkalemia when coupled with other medications. Usually these are used in conjunction with a loop diuretic to keep someone more normokalemic in theory. Now to recap diuretics, remember that they have an effect on sodium reabsorption. So these patients will excrete more than normal in turn have less fluid volume. Now with this increased diarrheas, we always need to be cautious about electrolyte imbalance, specifically our sodium and potassium. So now that you've learned about all these different types of blood pressure medications and why people take them, how can you apply this to your pre-hospital setting? Well, depending on where you work at and how advanced your program is, you may actually carry some of these medications and use them for their desired effects. So particularly in the place I work in, we use Cardizem, Metaprolol, and Nicardipine in blood pressure management, whether it be for a stroke where we have to keep their blood pressure within a certain uh, parameter, or if we're using these medications for their antiarrhythmic effect, such as Metaprolol or Cardizem in our sinus tac protocol. So for example, in a typical stroke protocol, when you have to manage the blood pressure within a certain parameter, uh, specifically in my protocol, we are given either nicardipine or labetalol. So this gives me the option to lower blood pressure through a calcium channel blocker effect, which is reducing the pressure on the arterioles, or use a beta blocker where I lower blood pressure through reducing the heart rate and contractility. So if you work in a more advanced service where you get to pick these medications, it's important to know the pharmacology of these medications and know exactly how they work. All right, guys, that's all I have for this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you at least learned something about a blood pressure medication. If anything, it may have reminded you to get your blood pressure under control. I want to again thank you for the support. Check us out on the website www.pushdosemedic.com. You can find me on Twitter at pushdosemedicpodcast. And like I said, if you're around in May 19th and 20th, come find me at the Fast 20 conference. You can meet me and also my good friends, the Pragmatic Paramedics, where we might be doing some collaboration podcasts. So I hope you guys have a good week and I'll see you next time. Take care.